millions more Americans just became gun owners, a look at Rob Pincus's unique activism style and an interview with Jim Garrity of the National Review. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, and I'm here again for our news update with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. Uh, we're going to do that before we get to our interview with the one and only National uh, Review senior correspondent, senior political correspondent, actually. I don't want to cut him short. Uh, uh, Jim Garrity, who's uh, going to talk to us a little bit about the uh, Chipman situation as well as uh, the NRA. So uh, <clears throat> before we get to any of that, though, let's talk about this week's biggest news story, starting with uh, a new survey from the National Shooting Sports Foundation that detailed how many new gun owners have been created over the last six months here, the first six months of 2021. Now, Jake, you wrote a piece uh, on this earlier in the week. Can you give us a little bit of uh, background? Would they find how many people uh, bought a gun for the first time? Sure. Yeah. So the uh, NSSF does um, regular retail surveys with their partnered uh, gun retailers. Um, so this one covered the first six months of this year. And the results of the survey found that they estimate about 3.2 million people became first time gun owners just the first, the first half of this year alone, um, which is a continuation of a trend that we saw obviously last year. Um, where similar surveys estimated around 8.4 million new gun owners. Um, so, you know, it's pretty incredible to, to see survey data showing that there's about 11.6 million new gun owners um, just in the last 18 months. It's pretty unprecedented. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, it's big news. and It's, it's a lot of people. Um, and it's well above the, yeah. the, the norm as well for how many new sure. gun owners are created uh, each year. Obviously, the, the last year and a half have been kind of a perfect storm for uh, gun buying in America. Uh, a lot of the sure. sort of motivating factors are there that, that uh, you don't usually see all at once with uh, the chaos of the pandemic, right. the uh, the rioting last year, the uh, bad relations between police and, my, and uh, minorities, the hate crimes against Asian Americans, um, you know, food shortages, police uh, uh defund the police movement, uh, uh, you know, the, and then obviously the politics of it is still uh, front and center now uh, with President Biden right. uh, pushing for, I mean, he just put in place a, a ban on new permits to import ammunition from Russian, uh, you know, from Russia, from Russian-made companies. Uh, and, and so um, there's quite a lot of uh, factors that go into why those numbers are so high. Um <clears throat> which I've, I've written sure. and you, a bit about in as an analysis piece too. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's also, I would say real quick that there's, there is some question as to how accurate those numbers are. Obviously they're just an estimate right. from a, from an industry trade group. Right. So they're, you know, they, they do this by asking dealers what, how many people they think were new customers. Um, and so dealers are obviously in, in some position to give that kind of estimate, but it's not going to be a perfect number. And we really don't have a num perfect number because the other measure is usually public polling where people are just directly asked if they're gun owners. Uh, and there's a lot of issues with that as well. But um, certainly I think there could be major impacts, right? If there's, if there really were 11.6 million new gun owners created over the last year and a half. Right. And, and experts we've talked to have pointed out to us, it's not the most scientific method, but it does point to a trend, at least, as mm -hmm. you said, dealers are in a good position to identify trends in the industry and in sales. Um, and a few of the other things that the survey uncovered also show some of the, the motivating trends that you were talking about. Um, over 76% of every single dealer pointed to an increase in uh, sales among minority groups, which is you know pretty incredible. We're talking about the fastest growing demographics in gun ownership are becoming minority groups. And that's reflected in these retail surveys. Right. And that also has, I think, perhaps an even bigger impact on the political landscape for, for gun politics, uh, because sure. minority groups tend to own guns at a lower rate and tend to support um, gun control uh, measures at a higher rate. But as more of them are becoming sure. gun owners, you can see that that change. It doesn't. 
Now, I don't think it means that you're going to see that change overnight. People don't tend to uh, instantly vote Republican Party line just because they bought a gun, you know, a month right. ago. Right. But uh, I think it'll have a more subtle impact but and a longer-term impact because these things don't necessarily develop overnight. Just because you bought a gun does not mean tomorrow you're going to become a gun voter, but it might mean in the long run, the next uh, election cycle or two, you might be more inclined to care about that issue than you were before you bought it. Absolutely. So uh, certainly that, I talk a little bit more about that in the members-only analysis piece, but, but I, I think that that's probably the biggest trend in guns on a macro level. Uh, that's going to have the biggest effect, and that's going to be the most important thing. But uh, we also finished this week our uh, exclusive interview with uh, Rob Pincus, who is a, a gun rights activist. He's, he's sort of a I don't know, countercultural gun rights activist, you might call him. He gets, he's, he's sort of... Uh, relishes going against the the grain i think oftentimes uh and so you get a taste of that in uh in our piece and and i ask him why he uh, operates that way and whether he thinks it has any sort of negative impact on what he's trying to do or whether it's a you know an advantage i ask him all sorts of questions that i think a lot of people have for him he's a very controversial figure i, I would say uh not yeah. you know not not to uh, he's he's uh fairly influential one as well for, for someone who, uh, you know, isn't the head of, of, you know, a 5 million member organization, but is trying to reform one in the NRA. Uh, and so we get into the, the second interview. I think we get a little bit into his, um, activism in, in the 3d printed gun world, uh, where he was just involved with the, one of the first, uh, homemade firearms matches, uh, that I covered down in Florida a couple months ago. Um, and then we, we talk a bit about his uh, activism at the NRA and what he wants to see reformed there, the, some of the changes he wants to make. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's a pretty, pretty interesting point of view. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, I thought it was a, a fascinating series of interviews. Um, as you said, he's kind of a lightning rod in the, in the gun space. Um, people love him, people hate him, but you can't deny that he has a big impact. Um, and yeah, he's a, a good figure to, to interview in that series. People should definitely read it. Yeah. And we, we did a, a third, uh, part to that interview. That's for, for members only as well. Um, where, where we get into his, his overall philosophy on guns and what, you know, his willingness to sort of call out, uh, I guess practices that he sees as toxic or, or. Uh, damaging within the gun owning community and he lays out a vision for how he wants to reach people outside i guess of the the echo chamber if you will of of gun activism uh and and some what he views as necessary for that to be uh successful in the long run i mean he he talks about how he wants uh gun ownership to be a bipartisan issue we want he, he wants to essentially eliminate the uh, the ability of like uh, any political party to take an anti-gun position, and he believes that doing that uh, is going to be accomplished by you know activism in uh, areas of uh, the American community where people aren't as likely to own firearms. Right, and it's interesting to see that coincide sort of what we were talking about with survey data showing new demographics getting into guns, seeing act, outspoken activists like Pincus coming out and making that their mission to get everyone involved. And you're starting to see that reflected in these legacy groups, like this new NRA ad you covered uh, for the reload this week, sort of reflects that same yeah. ethos. Yeah, it's an interesting ad. Uh, so the NRA, uh, there's an NRA instructor um, who is a member of the, the group's outreach committee who does a training every year in Detroit, uh, who's a, a uh, African-American guy who lives in Detroit and he's a trainer there and he does this training for black women specifically um, to try and encourage them to learn how to use firearms safely and it's been growing every year it's extremely successful um, and th this last year he the you know they trained over 4,000 uh, women at this event <clears throat> and uh, the NRA frankly <laughs> did a smart thing and went and profiled him for an ad uh, like he's an NRA certified instructor and an NRA member 
and an advocate for the NRA, and he's doing this amazing event, uh, and it's, <clears throat> I think, one of the better ads that the group has put out in, in a long time, um, frankly. Sure. Uh, you know, obviously, they've had issues uh, in the black community in the past, especially surrounding how uh, they handled the Philando Castile shooting, where they didn't, a lot of people were unhappy with uh, the lack of, I guess, NRA uh, involvement in that, um, right. uh, given that he was a concealed carry holder uh, and he was right. killed by a police officer for <clears throat> under at least very questionable circumstances. I, you know, I think everyone's probably seen the video and can judge for themselves what happened in that situation. But I think a lot of black gun rights activists wanted them to do more and they didn't. And so <clears throat> they've come under scrutiny for that in the past. Um, and, but the, here they are at least, you know, trying to, um, appeal to African Americans and women. And, and really the, the ad is about reaching out to all kinds of different, uh, demographics, all kinds of different people and saying that guns are for everyone. Um, so, uh, except for maybe leftists, I guess that's the, <laughs> that's, <laughs> the ad is not, <laughs> It's not very bipartisan, I suppose. It's uh, it's a lot about how the left. The NRA can only change so yes, much. Yes, it's a lot about how the left uh, wouldn't doesn't approve of, of black gun ownership. And and hey, maybe the, you know, you could make that case that certainly there are some people on the left who would not sure. approve of that uh, of what they were doing at that event. So uh, fair enough. But uh, but yes, it is an interesting ad, and I think it was worth highlighting um, and, and showing people that here's something the NRA is doing. The NRA is a very big group. It's it's a large organization. There's plenty of things to scrutinize and critique, but there's also plenty of things that they do that people, you know, you don't want to hide. It wouldn't be fair or or reasonable or balanced to hide the stuff they're doing that is uh, uh, worthy of highlighting in this way. So that's, that's so we wrote about it. And uh, I think people should go and watch it and judge for themselves what they think of the app. But uh, as for the rest of what's going on with the NRA, we're actually going to talk a bit about that uh, with Jim Garrity here in, in a moment. So uh, let's head on over uh, to Jim. We are here with Jim Garrity, author and National Review pol uh, political correspondent, senior political correspondent. Is that right? It is, Stephen. That's what you call a political correspondent who gets old. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you for having Thanks. me. And by the way, congratulations on, I would say, the launch of the Reload. I guess it's been it's been launched for a while, but uh, you have already become, you know, the shortest of the short list of go-to reporters on all gun issues. And uh, you know, going off and doing this on your own, is that, that took courage, my friend. So good for you. I'm glad to see it's thriving and uh, very happy to be with you. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, can you tell, tell people a little bit about yourself, anyone who might not know who you are uh, listening? Just give a little bit of background on, on Sure. I'm a cancer 6-2. No. Um, sorry. So I've been with the National Review in one form or another really since 2004 full-time, 2002 uh, as a freelancer. Um, started out writing something called the Kerry Spot during the 2004 presidential campaign. I, I joke that every time John Kerry opened his mouth, I had to write 250 words. Um, very popular, took off, uh, went over to Turkey for two years where my wife was working for the embassy out there and uh, tried my hand as a foreign correspondent. Um, as things got worse overseas, it was better, easier for me to get pieces in places, you know, bird flu and this, Stephen, this is back when bird flu seemed like a real health threat. <laughs> um, came back and covered the 2008 presidential election for National Review. And I've kind of been on the, the, the politics and elections beat for them ever since. Um, you know, then March 2020 came along and the pandemic overtook our lives. And with really, I'm not going to brag, I'm not a doctor, I don't play one on TV, uh, not an enormous amount of grounding in science and health reporting and stuff like that, dove into the pandemic just because I was surrounded by so many people who were like, holy crap, what's going on? What do I need to know? That kind of stuff. And so that became a big part of my beat. Uh, wrote a little bit about those labs in Wuhan. And the weird coincidence that they were working on, you know, doing gain of function research on novel coronaviruses in bats when we just happen to have this novel coronavirus that's found in bats come around and get us. So that's uh, occupied a big chunk of my time. And then Afghanistan is the latest story that I kind of knew a little bit about. Um, 
And I've just been hearing read from my readers who are very much involved in the effort to get people out of there. Um, and they're just unloading unbelievable information day after day about the ongoing efforts out there. So I guess this kind of makes me a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades master. In the middle of all this, um, early back in the 2004, I started joining our mutual friend Cam Edwards on his program on the late NRA TV, or at that point it was just called NRA News. Um, so guns and Second Amendment became a part of my uh, regular beat. I wouldn't pretend to know it the way you and Cam and, and those guys do. I think probably just more like the... Uh, it's funny for a long time how the NRA convention wasn't quite the Republican National Convention sort of an event, but you'd get a lot of big-name speakers out there. And if it wasn't quite a Republican primary uh, early audition, it was the kind of place if you were a strong-on-the-Second Amendment politician, you wanted to appear and you wanted to make your pitch because... 80,000 people attend. Maybe not all 80,000 people would be in the hall when you would appear, but a big chunk of them would. And if you did a good job with that crowd, um, that would help you out. I think Sarah Palin was at the first one I went to, I want to say, in Charlotte in like 2009, 2010, somewhere there. So, And yeah, also and the, the NRA one... convention is also where I usually get to see you, Stephen. That's why I was That's you know, right. so bummed uh, that you not occur this year. The last one, uh, yeah, unfortunately got canceled uh, due to, uh, you know, our, our latest wave of uh, COVID infections, which you've also, uh, as you mentioned, been been uh, keeping up with in your coverage. But, uh, the, yeah, the last NRA annual meeting featured uh, the Leadership Forum, which is where the, all the political speeches happen. And that was in Lucas Oil Stadium, uh, right. where the Colts play. Mm -hmm. So the, it gives yeah. you an idea of scale there. And that's the first time I've ever been on a, an NFL field, like Fair, on the yeah. field. Yeah. Uh, so that was cool. But yeah, and uh, the moment you put your hand on the, your feet on the artificial turf, you you store an ACL and you're out for the rest of the year. That's how you know it's how it works. Yeah. Yes. Also, like there were a lot of years for the NRA convention. Um, it would have sorry NRA annual meeting is the official name. I keep calling it the NRA convention, but the a uh, lot of fun. You know, one one day of like really solid work for me. Then walk around, take pictures of the cool guns and gear and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then getting to enjoy some city. Uh, sometimes with my colleagues like Charlie Cook, sometimes with Cam, stuff like that. And the last year, 2019, was, it was Indianapolis, right? Yes. Um, there was actual that news. That is where because, the Colts... That yes, is where the that's Colts... Right, yeah, sorry, yeah, <laughs> well, these cities kind of blur. I'm trying to remember which steakhouse was that. It was the really way I'm trying to remember. That, that. was uh, Max and Irma's. Yes, the, the fantastic yes, Which is great. And by the way, uh, people listening, um, I, we don't get into food coverage much here, but if you do go to <laughs> Indianapolis, you've got to... Not only get the steaks at Max and Irma's, but uh, which are fantastic, by the way. But uh, get the shrimp cocktail. That's that's, the, right. that's their famous thing. Yeah, who would uh, figure fantastic shrimp in Indiana? But yes, that uh, was off the charts. It was, yeah. It's uh, it's a uh, like a punch in the face that that cocktail <laughs> sauce they got there. Uh, but anyway, it was like there was actual big news here that year because that was when yes. all these reports of excessive and really ludicrously unjustifiable spending started bubbling up to the top. Um, a small amount of NRA board members and members were very upset about this. I think it's safe to say that, you know, and here's the thing, if we, I, I'm just gonna jump right into this, Stephen, unless you wanted to <laughs> steer me. Well, yeah. actually, uh, yeah, actually, we'll save the NRA stuff for okay. for a little bit later, because I do want to get into that. But first, you know, the, the big reason that I had you on is because of your uh, experience and expertise in, uh, you know, the politics of of all of this, uh, uh, not you know, obviously with uh, you know Afghanistan, COVID, uh, foreign policy stuff, uh, you're great on that as you mentioned earlier. But you're also really good at uh, just understanding the impact of uh, different stories on the political landscape. And so the first thing I wanted to talk about, uh, the second thing will be the NRA because I mm -hmm. think that's okay. interesting too. Um, but first, I wanted to talk a little bit about. The ATF nomination failing, uh, you know, Biden pulling his nominee, David Shipman, uh, just recently here. And what that says, I think, going forward for the president's uh, gun control agenda, the laws that he wants to get passed. All right. Well, Stephen, I won't embarrass you in front of all of the viewers and listeners by saying that you uh, you can count on one hand the people who stopped the Shipman nomination. And you probably are on that hand or you, you could cut on the. Uh, uh, counted on the hand of a, you know, uh, Lebanese bomb maker uh, who may have lost a few along the way. There's very few people who did more to derail that. So uh, I think you're entitled to take a bow on that. Um, but what's more, 
look, this is this for all the problems of this administration, and it's certainly in much rougher shape now than it was in January, February, March, the first couple of months. They really haven't had many problems getting their people confirmed. Um, the, you know, the one the office of, of management and budget, right? That you know, the uh, near attendance yes. you know, was, was kind yep. of the one that comes to mind. Other than that, the people Biden have picked, you know, all usually start with 50 Democratic votes to go. And most Republicans, and I think in a defensible position, I don't think you do yourself much good by taking the um, the attitude of I'm going to vote against every nominee that the opposing the party of the opposing party chooses to nominate. I'm going to if this person's reasonable, I'm going to vote for them. The president has a right to pick the cabinet they want. They have a right to pick the administration with the people they want, assuming they don't have a terrible scandal or they're not unbelievably <clears throat> corrupt or incompetent or evil or, or something like that. Chipman <laughs> may, have, may have checked all those boxes. Um, that he, he was about as controversial a choice as we, sh we would have expected from Joe Biden. And Joe Biden, the guy who earlier in his career used to say, I tell Jill, if you if you're worried about a home invader, get yourself a shotgun and just fire it out the window. That you know that, that, that every now and then, Joe Biden would claim that he wasn't that anti-gun or pro-gun control, or that he knew what was going on with those gun gun owners and stuff like that. He's he's good old backslapping Scranton Joe. He knows about this kind of stuff. Um, and then by you know 2020, he's got Beto O'Rourke and saying you're going to help me solve the gun issue and. Uh, if Joe Biden had any objection to Beto O'Rourke's, hell yeah, we're going to take your AR-15s. I didn't hear Joe Biden objecting to that at all. So again, you know, gun owners and Second Amendment supporters and, and you know, right of center folk for whom this is a big issue. We had no illusions that Joe Biden was going to be bad on this issue. The question was, how bad was he going to be? And in the hierarchy of policy priorities, how high was gun control going to be? Um, there are times like in the aftermath of something like the Parkland shooting where the Democratic Party seems, first of all, there, there almost are no gun, pro-gun or, or gun owners don't see a lot of Democrats who they would define as pro-gun. Um, it's like looking back at the, I know you don't want me to talk about the NRA conventions too much, but like Jim Webb, I'm pretty sure, spoke at one of them. Heath Shuler, the former North Carolina congressman and Washington Redskins quarterback. Uh, and a couple, occasionally you'd get a couple House Democrats or one or two Senate Democrats speaking at the NRA convention. The NRA took great pride in saying, look, we are a bipartisan organization. We'll work with anybody who's pro-gun. We are not a Republican organization. Those are, those Democrats are fewer and f further between. Um, I, I, you're really tough to find anybody. And if they have those views, they're certainly not outspoken about them. They, they really don't want people to, you know, the neutral, quiet neutrality is about the best you can expect out of the Democratic Party when it comes to the Second Amendment these days. And the rest of them are just straight up vehement, either opposed to the Second Amendment, or I guess probably the most common way of characterizing Stephen, they simply want to ignore the Second Amendment. They simply don't think that it, um, that, that any of their gun control proposals are in violation of it, that, you know, that um, anything that strikes them is bad. And it doesn't matter if you point out that this isn't really effective as a crime control policy and all you end up doing is creating more headaches for uh, law-abiding legal gun owners. And, you know, if you could do stuff like go after straw purchases and stuff like that, you'd have a bigger impact in places like Chicago. Um, you know, it, there is just almost this rote, unthinking, you know, the problem is AR-15s, the problem is gun owners, that kind of stuff in the Democratic Party. And I think, you know, this... Uh, reflects kind of this this cultural and demographic split between the two parties. Like you used to be able to find Republicans in cities and Democrats in rural areas. You used to be able to find blue collar whites who are proud members of the Democratic Party, their fathers of the Democratic Party, the grandfathers, you know, going back JFK, FDR. Um, and the, both parties are much more kind of culturally homogeneic. So my suspicion is that if you're a gun owner, if you thought of yourself as a Democrat 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you've probably drifted over to the Republican Party. Probably partially the gun issue, and probably also other issues could be everything from um, uh, abortion and cultural and values issues to just a sense of the Democratic Party starting to embody a urban elitism that looks down upon you. Um, and vice versa, that, you know, that there are probably people who might have been Republicans, but who are kind of pro-gun control, like suburban soccer mom types or something like that, who have you know mm -hmm. now flipped to the Democratic Party not wholeheartedly, but in really significant numbers. So, um, right, you know, but, uh, we expected I mean, things to be bad under Biden. The Chipman defeat is a really pleasant surprise for folks on the right who haven't had too many pleasant surprises in this administration so far.
Well, there, and, and that, uh, I guess, uh, one question I'd have for you on that point is, you know, obviously it was the Democrats who blocked this mm. nomination. Uh, certainly Joe Biden, obviously, is a Democrat himself, put up the nomination uh, and, and perhaps uh, pushed the limits of what was possible here, um, even with a Democratic majority in the Senate uh, from the very beginning, uh, given Chipman's background as a literal paid gun control activist. He works for the Giffords uh, Group, which is uh, one of the nation's most prominent gun control organizations, but uh, and he holds a number of policy positions that are further left on guns than most Senate Democrats publicly hold, including wanting to not just ban AR-15s, but subject them to, you know, not just banning new sales, but subjecting the current uh, currently owned ones to the National Firearms Act, which would require registration and tax stamps and and presumably would make you a, a felon if you didn't comply. Uh, so, you know, he already had these things that were uh, going to be big hurdles in getting him confirmed in a 50-50 Senate. But uh, at the same time, uh, the, obviously, the more news came out. And, you know, of course, I, I'm, I, uh, by our reporting at the Reload on uh, his background and some of the questions over uh, his uh, conduct with other agents, especially black agents, one of which directly uh, told me that he believed Chipman tried to torpedo his career during a promotion assessment uh, for reasons of racial bias. Now, the Department of Justice uh, confirmed that there was an investigation initiated by Chipman, they, but they also said uh, they also claim that he has no – they defended Chipman, said he didn't have racial bias. And um, so that probably had uh, some impact as well, as you alluded to. I, I think probably a significant impact, uh, although obviously the reporting is uh, – you know, the, the goal was, was not to uh, take down a nominee. It was to scrutinize his background uh, as uh, yeah, you're supposed yeah. to do in, in journalism. Um, uh, I'm glad it had an impact in terms of people reading it and taking it seriously. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think his his nomination was always a bit of a long shot. Um, in hindsight, perhaps um, it's difficult to get an ATF director confirmed. But it was ultimately Democrats who blocked him because he didn't need any Republicans to to be confirmed. So, uh, you know, I don't know. What is that? What do you think that says? Because I, I think the general um, thrust of what you said, it, it makes sense, right? That that there has become uh, a more polarized, the, the issues become more polarized over the last couple of decades and Democrats have moved further away from uh, policies that gun owners are supportive of and towards more gun restrictions and, you know, the Republican Party has moved in the other direction. Uh, <clears throat> and so groups like the NRA have certainly – you see this in their rank, their ratings, and you see this in their – who shows up to their annual meeting to speak. Um, I guess there's, a, there's also a question of how much of that is being – is them reacting to that dynamic and how much of it is them – driving that dynamic uh i think that's something that's really interesting to to uh think about um is this just a, are they just being dragged along in this way or is the nra uh contributing to that sort of polarization or or uh you know the gun the gun control groups uh themselves are they you know by becoming sort of identity groups more than single issue groups you know mm -hmm. you see this i talk about this a lot with uh, the aclu has uh, done similar strategic moves where they're less about civil liberties in particular now and more about being a where the general are. liberal identity yeah. group. Yeah. Um, one of the, uh, the kind of factors that was always at work in this is every Senate Democrat knows every Republican, uh, so every president usually has a bad midterm going back to, to the, you got to go back to 2002 to find the last time the president's party really not only didn't have, you know, not only do you not usually have a good midterm, usually you get slammed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen the party lose the majorities of at least one chamber in Congress in uh, 2018, 2014, 2010, 2006. 
You can see the clear pattern there. So there's this ticking clock in the minds of Senate Democrats. They really only have two years to get stuff done the way they want to get it done. And they recognize they've only got the 50-50 split in the Senate, and they actually don't even have that many. They've been the three or four in the House with all the vacancies they've had. So, you know, they keel over or take positions in the administration, and all of a sudden what looked like a, okay, we're going to be all right, majority turns into just a handful. And, you know, one flight being late on Monday from California, and all of a sudden you don't have the uh, the majority in the House that you thought you are going to have. So um, they're operating with a very tight margin. So the question is, okay, all of these votes are going to be tough. All of these votes are going to require a lot of arm twisting. Which ones, what, are, what do we really want to pass? And what are we, what is worth taking a political risk to pass? Now, you know, uh, you know they, they're trying to get infrastructure spending. They're trying to get, oh, this is a terrific time for my phone to call. I, <laughs> I bet you. We had, Stephen, we had I'm phone calls certain, last week, too. They're almost show. certainly, this is, we're calling to reach you about your car's warranty. Oh, you know, yeah. You know. I get those all the time. And the worst thing is, as a reporter, like most people, you know who, do, who who has phone calls anymore? Exactly, right? You know, under yeah, the text age like yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't recognize this um, number. Most people wouldn't care. Now, yeah, no. they just ignore it. But I got to answer all. Right. Of them. It's, maybe it's a source. Maybe because it's somebody. It's, you know. It could be a yeah. source. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm always getting it's these, David Chipman's neighbor to tell you what oh. he's gone. Yeah, you know, so, you know. it's um, awful. No, but, yeah. So trying to remember my train of thought. So if you're a Senate Democrat, uh, I mean, you know, most Senate Democrats are in safe states, but there are a handful that aren't. I don't think Angus King is in enormous chance of losing his seat in Maine. But really antagonizing his state's gun owners probably would put him at a point where he'd really have to sweat about it. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Susan Collins ended up winning by a you know, fairly reliable uh, margin in Election Day 2020. Um, but, but King, you know, keeps telling us he's an independent. He caucuses with the Democrats. You've right. got to look really hard to see where you can find a difference between Angus King's positions and most other Democrats. But actually, this in the case of the Chipman nomination... Maybe he's given us all a very vivid example of a nominee who was okay to the majority of other Democrats and really most other red state Democrats. There, there was not an enormous, you know, but Angus King, you know, either he sensed, either he was genuinely bothered by Chipman or he could figure out that voting for Chipman was going to give the gun owners in state, at his state, you know, mad as hell about it and, and ready to walk across broken glass to vote for whoever was running against him. Um, and one of the things that is intriguing about the gun issue going back you know to the bush years it's not just the country has a lot of gun owners it's also a matter of where they live uh, and it tends to be swing states it te- you know like there are gun owners in new york state but it's not really a state you necessarily think of as, as a gun issue and unfortunately you know they don't necessarily have think things have not been moving in the right direction there but you know think about swing states like michigan pennsylvania ohio wisconsin uh, and then, ironically, in the last couple of cycles, Maine has been one of these states that is a uh, swing state. Donald Trump winning the congressional district uh, and, and getting one of those electoral votes and things like that. So if you're Angus King, you one, you know the midterms are going to go badly. Two, you know the Biden administration is going to ask you to take some votes that might not be kind of popular. This probably was a bridge too far. This probably was like, you know, I can't go any further than this. I'm just not going to do it. And the other thing which I think kind of alluded to is that if David Chipman had been this like universally revered law enforcement official who had, you know, everybody loved him and boy, he was swell and he, you know, rescued a bus of orphans from terror, you know, whatever, you know, if he'd gone into the sterling reputation, then maybe, other, you know, not just Democrats, maybe even Lisa Murkowski's and Susan Collins, the world would have said, okay, well, he's a swell guy and we trust him to enforce the laws against him. Um, but he's not. And as you said, he's a gun control activist. Uh, quite extreme, going to positions that even most, you know, purple state Democrats would not feel comfortable going. So the other thing also right. is like, look, if the administration wants to set gun policy, you can set it from the white. In the, I don't want to say the ATF matter director doesn't matter, but you can find somebody who will give you a lot of what you want out of David Chipman without being David Chipman, who won't have his glaring weaknesses and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So maybe. Um, sorry, Maybe, uh, you know, th- th- uh, I do want to talk to you a little bit about what you just brought up here, because I, I wrote an analysis piece over at the reload uh, on this uh, topic of like where where things go from here. Uh, it's a members piece, but but uh, so people should buy a membership. Well, so that's why people it. should become members. Yes, exactly. You know. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that you've articulated what I what I noticed as well, which is 
this might have been the end, the one opportunity, really, that Biden had to appoint an ATF director, uh, a Senate-confirmed one, at least. You know, obviously, the agency will continue to function with the acting director as it's been functioning to this point. But the timetable to to nominate someone else is very short before the midterms, and I don't see senators, these Democratic senators who blocked this nomination, you know, King, Manchin, Tester, uh, maybe Cinema, um, wanting to take this issue up again right uh, during the election year, during yeah. 2022. And I don't know that they'd have the time to get it through the by the end of this year, especially with everything else going on, with the, they're going to have a fight over the debt ceiling and yeah. budget. And if you're to take a controversial vote on an ATF director, you want it as far from election day as possible. You want right. it to be the last thing you want to do is to have a really controversial vote that's going to stir up people in your home state right, right. before election day. So exactly, and then from there, you also have the problem, as you mentioned, uh, that. Democrats are probably going to lose seats. I mean, they'll, they'll almost certainly lose seats in the House. Um, I'd actually be interested in your take on what the Senate is going to look like. But they're probably uh, – to make this kind of vote easier, to get to get a Chipman-esque nominee through, someone who isn't just, you know, a career ATF guy but who is an activist who will, you know, sort of shepherd through the president's agenda on guns, um, you know, in a way that can sidestep Congress – that's, you know, that's going to require um, probably more Democratic senators, Yeah, it seems like at this point. Um, I, maybe you could find someone that would act the same way Chipman does and give the president the same kind of political benefit with the gun control uh, groups that Chipman does. I kind of doubt it, but but who isn't like as controversial personally, but that seems unlikely to, like, I just don't yeah. know that there's a candidate like that any, out there. Yeah, any ATF director nominated by Joe Biden would be seen by most gun owners as a pro-gun control figure. I, I think that's, you right. know. But well, the question but, is how gun control and kind of how antagonistic is this figure mm-hmm. in their, you know, state public statements and speeches and, and stuff like that. And right. I mean, because the problem is if you, if you, let's say everything's the same, you don't, they don't lose any seats in the Senate. Uh, after the midterms, mm. which is the probably a rosy picture yeah, think, of where yeah. things are headed, they're still like, why would why would their vote change on like yeah, you know. why would why would these senators who blocked Chipman be any more amenable to just Chipman 2.0 instead? Like King himself, from you know what my sources tell me, put up the names of the current ATF acting director. And another former acting director who are both career people to get through. And so you could probably get someone like that through. But the question becomes, what, what's the point of doing that? Yeah, you know, like, you know, how much value, if, if, you know, ironically, you're seeing a very similar issue at the FDA where, where you know, we're, you may have noticed there's this little thing called a pandemic going on. And yet there still is not a full, you know, we're still having a Federal Food and Drug Administration run by an acting director. You kind of think that this administration, we're all about the pandemic, would have, you know, jumped on that a little bit earlier um mm-hmm. you know if you're if you're happy with the way the organization is operating under an acting director yeah if you want to make them a, a full form go ahead fine you know if there's not going to be an enormous opposition in in the senate fine I, you know but in the right. end it doesn't make it you know, he, his powers are the same his ability to function is largely the same um right. I, I guess you know it basically comes down to political capital you know a, a new president right. coming into town in january can go to almost any member of his party in the house or senate and say look I really need you, your vote on this. And 99 times out of 100, they'll get it. You know, mm-hmm. it's one of those things, we you know. Now, when you are nine months into your presidency and you have a 42% approval rating in Quinnipiac, you don't have that same uh, political capital and you don't have that same poll. And maybe you've spent that, I really need your vote on the COVID stuff, or you may have really used, I need your vote on uh, some other nomination or the infrastructure bill or something like that. Or maybe you're somebody like Bob Menendez, who is by you know, not often a critic of Democrats, or they, but who's really PO'd about Afghanistan. So mm-hmm. maybe they're not in the mood to do a favor for you, particularly if they think there's going to be blowback in the next upcoming election. So right. you know, I think in the end, Biden, you know, in his heart, he's, of course he's pro-gun control. Like that, that's, you know, that's almost a given. 
the question of how much political capital he's willing to expend in pursuit of pro-gun control legislation and goals it was always a question of that to begin with like the interesting thing remember he said I'm going to have Beto in my cabinet and um, it's behind me Steve and I have a milk carton and on the side it says have you seen me and has Beto O'Rourke underneath it um, <laughs> have you seen is he abducted by aliens did he you know um, I, I, I there's a question of how much this is really a priority for the Biden administration and I think this fight is going to make the Biden administration probably even more reticent they'll, they'll, he'll refer to it he'll give speeches he'll be fine on that but the idea of expending political capital to enact pro-gun control stuff, I think, you know, as the old saying, once bitten, twice shy. I don't know. I, I mean, I think or he's willing to do it. I, I just know. don't think he has the pull yeah. to get. He doesn't. He doesn't have the pull to get Chipman through. There, there's no way that they're going to get any sort of gun control bill through the Senate right now, uh, and and so he would do it if he could. And so that's why he's doing things like the executive orders. Uh, to try and outlaw, you know, pistol braces and redefine the uh, what constitutes a firearm and give the ATF broader powers. And then the other part of that was supposed to be David Shipman, who worked at the ATF and is a paid yeah. gun control activist, would shepherd through a lot of these uh, moves uh, where the president was using his power to unilaterally enact new regulations on guns. Uh, in what the most expansive way he possibly could under, you know, without violating uh, the federal law, though, you know, honestly, these these executive orders will probably be challenged in court. And it's not clear that they're going to, you know, stand up to that challenge. But um, I think it's uh, interesting to see where this this all goes i just i, I just don't see yeah. how he's going to have an opportunity to appoint someone that would be worth it to him to appoint to the atf this is probably why there's so few, there's only been one confirmed director it's not just that it's hard to get these guys confirmed it's also like there isn't that much payoff to it yeah uh versus how much political capital you got to spend to do it like you know you, sure he could probably easily get the act, the current acting director through, you probably get a, a number of Republican votes on that too. Uh, but what advantage does that bring him politically? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the agency, you know, a lot of agents would like an, a, a confirmed director because he can, really the main difference is that he can serve for a longer period of time. An acting director can only serve a year at a time. And so they're constantly moving through the heads of this this law enforcement agency, which is, uh, you know, not great. Yeah, not ideal. <laughs> but yes, yeah, most yeah, presidents yeah. want to get a guy that that's their guy in there, yeah. rather than like just take a career guy and make him the head because they want to leave their mark or they want to do, they want to run their gun control agenda or their gun their agenda on guns generally through the ATF by having a political appointee in there that's going to be willing to work with them and do you know fulfill their agenda and. If Biden can't get someone like that through, which it doesn't seem like he can now, uh, probably for the rest of his term, because the I doubt that the last rest of his first term, because I doubt that the midterms are going to go well enough to where it'll be easier for him to get someone like that through. So, you know, they say they're going to nominate someone else, but it's it's just a question of like, who are you going to nominate and why would their nomination go any better than Chipman's did? And. Um, I mean, maybe they find that Goldilocks candidate. Who knows? We'll, we'll have to keep tuned in on it. But I think it's going to be a stretch. And um, and then, you know, obviously, he's not guaranteed a second term. If he, if he wins re-election and gets a bigger majority in the Senate, then, uh, yeah, all bets yeah, are off. And he can do game. what he but, wants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but I, yeah, ironically, so I guess we probably should acknowledge that, you know, Joe Biden is getting up there in years. He doesn't like to give speeches at night. He wanders around the White House, but he's on the lawn sometimes. You know, like the, so the idea that you know Biden's getting up, you know, like the idea of you know does Biden finish his, his his first term? As much as I disagree with the man, as much as I can't stand him, as much as I've had real vehement, passionate disagreements with the decisions he's made, I hope he lives to be a hundred and I hope he enjoys good health. But let's assume for the moment maybe he doesn't, and at some point he has to step down. And we're dealing with President Kamala Harris. I, I do think that would be a. I think it's a, probably much more likely that that would be a the. the the symbolism of the issue would be more important to her, and I could see her be making gun control a more focused 
Like just a higher priority in a Kamala Harris administration, just looking at her record as know. California Attorney General and stuff. Uh, I mean, maybe. I kind of do. I mean, Biden's whole career, he, he's definitely very dedicated to gun control. And obviously, he's very old, uh, like Trump is very old. Um, apparently, all we can find to run for president now yeah. are very old people. You have to be um, in the cast of Cocoon if you were, yeah. you're running for president now, apparently. Uh, you, you know, I, I think he'll probably, I think his health will probably hold out. I, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, I, you know, I don't see any signs that he's about to resign Malarkey. or anything like that. But Stephen, it was but, four or um, five days ago. Get hanging off the plane. Yeah, sure. I know. He, he's, he makes gaffes just like Trump made gaffes. And, you know, I, Biden made, has made gaffes his entire career. That's a good point. It's, it's really point. tough to get a baseline of normal behavior yeah. and statements from Biden. to Which against. is true of yeah, a lot yeah. of politicians, That's especially our, yeah. our current batch of very bombastic yes. politicians that yeah. are popular now. Um, they, they long have said crazy, wacky things. And uh, so it's going to be kind of hard to tell when, <laughs> when things are not right with them because they're, they're always doing crazy stuff but uh, anyway like yeah i mean and kamala is she more committed to gun control than biden maybe i mean publicly in her stated positions yeah but i mean i think that comes from the fact that she was a politician in california and he was a politician in delaware and uh you know i don't know what yeah. what her like hard what her true uh beliefs are you know at the core i think biden is pretty personally dedicated to the issue yeah. um, i guess the and you're right maybe it's the cosmetic difference i i can't see kamala harris giving that stick shotgun out the window speech yeah. you know and pretending that she knows it gets along right with gun but owners. that's like i can Biden's hear her laughing but you know nonsense like yeah, exactly that advice is illegal yeah but but <laughs> you recognizing can't fire the, like, warning shots off into the air that's yeah. like he's that's Biden a stupid felt thing that, that he said i know that say, he's trying to be like right. the gun Oh, yeah. I, I get I you guys. Too, I know how you guys feel. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. that Harris would but feel it, any, that never came off as any like need to play anyway. that. Yeah. <laughs> I, guess, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, the difference is that Kamala Harris doesn't feel the need to fake it. Maybe. And yeah. Does. And maybe that's, you know, maybe, maybe she maybe would, though, if she, ever, if she ever won a race that mattered to it with a yeah. general election. You know, she never got that far in her yeah. career. Yeah, she's, she's she was uh, Which, by the way, I think attorney general in California. You don't exactly have to play to the middle to get that role. I was going to say, look, a lot of Republicans competing to be attorney, uh, chief prosecutor in San Francisco. You know, they're they're just notorious out there. Um, Yeah. But uh, like I, I just all I'm saying is I wouldn't be surprised if what the when when Kamala runs for president, whenever that's going to be, um, if she took a more centrist track than she did when she was running in the Democratic primary for California Attorney General. You know what I mean? Um, so, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll have, that's all speculation at this point. Um, I, what I want to talk about, though, is uh, as well is, is to get back to the NRA um, and the, the situation that they're in, because, you know, uh, you know, we we went to the last annual meeting together, which happened to have been two years ago. Yeah, at this point, thanks to the pandemic. Yeah. Actual and news was, and, and earthquakes at that one. And yeah, little did we know the, it would be the last one for God knows how many years. But uh, yeah, yeah, I know you would not have thought that at the time, of course. But uh, but it was a very eventful one too. That that was really the beginning of the public fight over the, these allegations of corruption that have been levied against uh, NRA executives like CEO Wayne Lapierre and and others. Uh, and we've got there's been some significant updates on that over the last week. Uh, well, one, you know, they had to cancel their annual meeting, which is where they have what's called the members meeting, which is what you're referring to. And in 2019, that was big. Uh, There's big blow up at that. Not not literal, but the figure blow up of like a lot of members came in and were uh, very upset with allegations that uh, of misuse of funds by the NRA, by, well, by NRA executives, misuse of NRA funds for personal and luxury expenses like private flights and suits and uh yacht trips fancy vacations you know all this stuff to the tune of millions and millions of dollars over several decades tens of millions of dollars really over over several decades uh that had just broken in the new yorker i believe mike spees the reporter he had gotten leaked documents uh, from the nra's audit committee and wrote a very explosive uh again figuratively explosive piece on on these allegations and then news came that the new york attorney general was investigating them and eventually she filed suit 
and is now attempting to uh, dissolve them, shut them down completely, which is a pretty shocking thing. You know, all all sides of this are fairly shocking. Um, uh, would be a very unusual thing for that. Really, the first time ever, I think that some, an organization the size of the NRA, with the political uh, clout that it has, to be shut down over even serious allegations of misconduct would be unprecedented, really. Yeah. And uh, but so the members meeting happens at the annual meeting. The annual meeting just got canceled again for the second time in a row. Second year in a row, thanks to COVID. And now they've actually rescheduled it. They've announced, they've told the board that it's going to happen uh, on October 2nd in Charlotte, North Carolina. They haven't released a um, location yet uh, as of the rec- when we're recording this podcast. But uh, so that's, that's where members are actually supposed to be able to voice their, you know, opinions and feelings to the leadership. Uh, that's like the official venue for it. And they can offer resolutions. There was a resolution at the 2019 meeting, which basically was the resolution was for the for Wayne LaPierre and the audit committee and a number of other board members to be to resign, um, which which created a lot of that controversy in the shouting match that happened that, you know, we were both witness to. Um, and so this, you know, now the annual meetings canceled it's unlikely that a lot of members are going to show up for this members meeting that they've rescheduled, you know, and haven't uh, announced like three weeks out. Um, and then also you have the attorney general updating the brief, uh, in the case where she makes an, a number of new allegations. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them came from testimony during the bankruptcy trial. <laughs> Boy, there's a lot. We, <laughs> Yeah, you're trying to summarize like two to three years worth of news. And uh, NRA tried to file bankruptcy to avoid the New York dissolution suit. It didn't work, but there was a lot of testimony in that case that was damaging towards the NRA and its executives. And now a lot of that has been incorporated into a new brief in the New York case. And that's where we're at today. So (laughs) do you want to maybe give your uh, take on on what's coming from the NRA? Like what? Uh, okay. the, the situation clouds. generally yeah so first of all i want to say Stephen, i'm glad you're staying on top of this and covering this because this has been one of the well before i was dealing with like mass death from pandemics and mass death in afghanistan i thought this was a depressing story now it looks cheery and happy by comparison mm. um and i say that in the sense that like you know what well, yeah this was the, the you know, after election day 2020 the nra looked like I say kings of the world, but like, you know, they had done, they, they, uh, 2016, pardon me. Yeah. Yes. Um, that they had mobilized in those upper Midwest states for Donald Trump. Yeah. Women who were gun owners turned out to be a really key demographic. And, you know, you, you, because it was so close, you could point to the finger to any organization and said, yes, they were the one that made the difference. But there was a really strong argument to say that the NRA had a big part in yeah. Donald Trump's win. In I mean, they were the first outside group to really back yeah. him and put money yeah. behind him. There were a lot of conservative or right of center organizations that looked at Trump and were like, uh, but in part, I think, you know, I think Donald Trump Jr. Uh, had a role with that. He's always been very active in hunting and, and gun control stuff. And mm-hmm. in the general sense that, you know, for his all of the flaws that Donald Trump has, I think he recognized that if he was going to be the Republican nominee, he had to be pro-life. If he wanted to be the Republican nominee, he had to be pro-gun. So any past statements he had made that were supportive of gun control or stuff like that, forgotten, and that he was going to be their guy and he was going to stand up for them. And uh, were you at the one in, in Louisville where Trump uh, yes. just won that? Yeah, I mean, yeah he was reception. the first president to yeah. speak at the convention yeah. since... Well, this was the year he was... Yeah, this was 2020, sorry, 2016. This is the year he was a candidate. And I was waiting for there to be some wariness or, or uh, that the crowd loved him from, from you know, the moment one. So it was one of those things where, like, sure. you know, okay, we're going to ride or die with this guy. And he won. And if Wayne LaPierre had decided he was going to retire in early 2017, he'd be remembered as a hero of the Second Amendment, and none of these controversies ever would have stuck to him. Um, I think if you look at a lot of organizations become big and powerful, you can probably find some spending that is iffy. Uh, that end up being perks for the, the top executives and stuff like that, that is debatable about whether it really 
uh, is for the good of the organization or whether it really should be counted as additional compensation. Because, oh, by the way, if the, co if the organization is spending it, you're not paying taxes on it. Um, you know, you're not paying taxes on that private jet and stuff, you know, this, the com compensated meals and the hotel stays and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yes, which would was, probably yeah. be a big issue uh, for Wayne LaPierre and others at some point, I would imagine, well, yeah, down we, the line the, after this civil case is settled. Yeah, you know, and here's the thing. People like myself, and I, I'm going to be, you know, like, I, I looked at that and said, well, this is really not justifiable. Um, and unfortunately, I think there were this, this quickly turned in, this was completely misconstrued by two significant groups. The first were the number of like either mainstream media, liberal media, however you want to characterize them, who thought this was a gun issue. Actually, no, this is a lawyers and money issue. This, you know, that old saying, send lawyers, guns, and money. Um, that ultimately this was, that really had very little to do with actually gun rights, Second Amendment, stuff like that. It was entirely, what is, a, what is an appropriate expenditure for a national organization that is involved in a cause and how much should it be spending on stuff that the executive and the top level folks get to enjoy that is not easily clearly directed to the actual running of the organization? And was the National Rifle Association's finances basically turning into a big uh, uh, money piggy bank or, or you know, petty cash drawer for anything Wayne LaPierre and other folks wanted? And some of this ties into uh, Ackerman McQueen, the number of the large public relations firm that was being spent was creating NRT, NRA TV. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of questions. People think, why are we spending all this money on this, and what are we getting in return? Um, and it was, I, I think, a lot of these questions were really legitimate. Unfortunately, suddenly was a minority of the board that really had a problem with it. And it, so, like I said, the first group were the liberal media who didn't get it, and then there were people who saw this as ah. The liberal media is going after Wayne LaPierre. Now, in a lot of cases, the liberal media is going after Wayne LaPierre, but that doesn't mean Wayne LaPierre is always right, and that doesn't mean that the NRA's top executives can always. Um, I think my in the last two years, the signal to me that this was okay, this is really bad, this is really serious, was when uh, Chris Cox, the man who had been the head of the uh, NRA ILA Institute for Legislative Action, basically their chief lobbyist, and I talked to Chris Cox plenty of times over the years. I think he's really good at his job, really knew Congress inside and out, really knew every aspect of maximizing political pressure on lawmakers to make sure that they did the right thing in the eyes of the NRA. Um, and Chris Cox walking away from the organization is kind of like Derek Jeter quitting the Yankees midseason. I, I try to give the, the, the right metaphor of you know somebody who was really dedicated to the organization seeing it as being full of problems, not wanting to be associated anymore, and walking off and heading and doing something else with, with his life was a kind of giant flashing red sign that this is bad. Um, unfortunately, reform has not come. Um, I, the other problem in all this, because I've been critical of the liberal media, I've been critical of the knee-jerk defenders of Wayne LaPierre and the NRA leadership. The other problem is that Tish James is probably the worst possible person to lead to bring this lawsuit, in part because before getting elected, she's characterized the NRA as a terrorist organization. Right. Now, I, yes. I think that is an absurd and really a, almost an offensive form of hyperbole in light of the fact of what we've seen actual terrorists do. People who think differently than you and believe the right. Constitution's Second Amendment means what it says, like they're not terrorists. You can, you can think they're wrong. You can think they're completely, you know, you can, you can argue the Second Amendment should be repealed. You can do whatever you want, but calling these people terrorists. But then the next thing is, is that, you know, Tish James had legitimate concerns about NRA management fall in her lap. And now she's going after them and attempting to disband them. And a whole bunch of people at the NRA who probably would want to hand wave away those bad expenditures can say Tish James is on a political vendetta. And for all sense of purposes, she might be. This may yeah. be a story with no particular heroes. Um, right. I, yeah, I would I like to see that's... an effective NRA someday exist, and I don't know if the prospects of that are particularly good right now. Yeah, things are things are pretty bleak right now for the legal situation for the NRA. I would I would say is, is a fair point to make, especially you know you don't file bankruptcy for, for nothing. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's uh, a sign things aren't going your way. If and, that's and your having, strategy, you know, big to conventions get out of by it, the way, were where like a ton of donations usually came in. You know, you had 80,000 yeah. people attend most years. The people signed up for lifetime memberships and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, they usually got a very big cash, infu cash infusion. And I think the yep. cancellation of this only came eight days before it was supposed to occur, which was yeah. kind of late. In so it, and it, I, that's been really bad for them, too, financially. Um, but, 
I do think you hit on a good point there about you can look at each side of this situation and find excuses for whatever preconceived notions you have about the NRA or its leadership or Tish James, the attorney general of New York or, or whoever, and, and just run with that one part of the story and you'll have a piece of the truth to back you up. Right. Uh, yeah. Tish James is biased against the NRA. I think that's fair to say, but also there's serious misconduct that the NRA executives have already admitted to uh, in the bankruptcy case. And Wayne LaPierre admitted to taking $400,000 worth of excess benefits. That's what he admitted to doing already uh, on things I mean, like All that wardrobe flights. helps and he still dresses like an undertaker. You wonder where all that money was going. And, what, and you can look black at, suits. Uh, that's all you came up with, really. Right. You know, I could have got that from a Will Smith movie, but anyway. yes, yeah, so, uh, you'd think he'd be able to come up with something like what you see at the Met. You know, there you uh, go. Exactly. You know, the, the, the fun wacky of side of Wayne Lapierre. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Like when the money you're spending. Yeah, you should get something a little more yeah. uh, flashy than a than a power suit. But anyway, <laughs> and of course, those were bought by Ackerman McQueen. Who you can look at uh, Ackerman McQueen and what they were doing and, and conclude that they were were uh, taking advantage of the NRA and you can you could look from Ackerman's point of view and say the NRA was uh, you know uh, okay with this when it was happening <laughs> that they were doing it intent you know that this was an intentional thing and that the NRA uh, that they were providing you know a lot of what people know as the NRA you know the the ads. I am the NRA, you know, Charlton Heston was a Ackerman McQueen product, uh, you know, the NRA TV, uh, a lot of the people that you like Dana Lash and, and Colleen Noir and a lot of these guys who, and Cam that technically worked for Ackerman, not for the NRA, uh, based on how this stuff, uh, worked in, in practice. And so, uh, the thing is you can look at this from any particular point of view and find some piece of truth to back up whatever you want to believe about the situation. And I think it's important for people to try and take a more holistic view of the whole thing. And that's how I try to approach it and be, mm. be fair, but, but uh, non, not compromising towards any, any of the parties involved. Um, because I think that's the most important thing for uh, not only the public generally, but the NRA members themselves to be informed about what's happening. And, and, uh, you know, to that point, I would encourage people to go and read the actual, uh, updated brief in the case, uh, that, that James has filed for themselves. So they can at least get a full grasp of what the NRA is being accused of, because it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. It's There's very hard to believe pages. that all of this is made up or innocent misunderstandings or, or stuff like that. Every, every organization needs somebody who's kind of, kind of a jerk kind of the, the, you know, the guy who's basically, who basically say, can we afford it? And is this, you know, worth spending money on? It, does this advance our core, our core mission? And if the answer is no, no, we can't do that. And as much as you don't like having that person, you need that person. And what it certainly sounds like is that there was nobody playing that role at the NRA to say, no, we can't afford that. Or no, that's not a good expense. You know, like, no, you don't need another private jet. No, you can buy your own suits. No, you don't need to spend that much. We don't need, we like Ollie North, but we don't need Ollie North to do a version of his war stories show for Ackerman yeah. McQueen and get paid a million dollars or what is it, some ungodly song. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was one it was of those things like, yeah. yeah, okay. So a million dollars for like nine episodes of a show or something like that. It was just ludicrous expenditures that you could not justify as being in the best interest of the organization. And there, there was no watchdog. There was nobody around to say, we really shouldn't do that. That's just not a good way to spend members' money. And the iron, one of the more frustrating things that I think through this entire process is that the number of members who've been upset about how their money was spent, Stephen, I don't get the feeling it's a, it's a big majority at all. I think, they, I think most members trust Wayne LaPierre. They've trusted him for a very long time. They've trusted all these guys. And they don't want to believe that their money was spent. Oh, they must have good reasons for all that stuff. And, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I'm like sure good, there's a lot of that. I feel like good I folks will are being taken that, advantage of. I will say that a lot of the members that I've, that have spoken to me about the situation. Most of them are very unhappy, uh, okay. but you haven't seen that materialize in, you know, uh, the board elections or things like that. Although there's been a lot of issues raised with how the board elections work themselves and how the NRA operates internally. That's 
this is one of the main reasons why James argues that the whole group needs to be shut down rather than just, you know, reformed yeah. or have a few leaders executives yeah. removed. So, uh, but then obviously, you know, people should read the NRA's reply briefs in these cases to understand, uh, you know, what the, the arguments from the NRA's lawyers are as well. Uh, and be fair to to both sides of the issue, but uh, and obviously I'll I'll keep reporting on what's going on, and I'm sure that we'll probably have more uh, analysis from you that will be insightful as as always on the issue. So people should keep up with that, and if they if they want to keep up with what you're doing and and you're writing and you're podcasting, uh, can you can you let us know how they can do that? Sure. Uh, at National Review, go to the newsletters page. I write the Morning Jolt. Uh, send it out every morning, Monday through Friday. Great um, newsletter. About, yeah, thank you. Uh, about 1,500 words. Sometimes it's about a couple different topics. Sometimes it's just one big topic of the day. Uh, I also write National Review's Corner. Sometimes I write pieces separately for them. Uh, and on Twitter, I am at Jim Garrity. Please be warned that you're going to get politics Monday through Friday. And then on Sunday, you're just going to hear nonstop profanity about the New York Jets. You've been warned. <laughs> That's one of the best reasons to follow. And then you also uh, do podcasts as well. Yes. So uh, once a day with Greg Columbus of Radio America, we do a podcast called The Three Martini Lunch. It's usually only about 15 to 25 minutes. We go through three topics of the day. We usually try to have a, a good martini, a bad martini, and a crazy martini. One item in the news that is good for conservatives, one that's bad news for conservatives, and one that's just flat out crazy. Uh, we had a lot of bad and crazy lately. We've been, been you know, good martinis have been you know few and far between. Uh, and I also five, do a five or six years. I would. Yeah. Uh, I also do a pop culture podcast with Mickey White. Yes, we haven't taped one in a very long time. She's on a different work schedule. I've been crazy with stuff, but we do intend to get back to that. And that's kind of the lighter, fluffier. Hey, what's on Netflix? What are we enjoying? What's going on in the Marvel universe? That sort of thing. So great. I sh we should. I I'd love to call on that one too. Well, we have, we've had a very select list of guests in part because we just never get around to it. But, Stephen, I, I will recommend you. I think you have a good chance. Oh, good. good. Put in a good word for me with the hosts. Will do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all, right. all right. Well, thank you again for coming on, and uh, I hope we'll have you back on again soon. Anytime, Stephen. Good to see you. All right. That's it for this week's episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Remember, if you buy a membership, you get it a day early. And access to a bunch of exclusive content on thereload.com as well as our Sunday members only newsletter. So it's a pretty great deal, I think, as you know, the founder of the Reload, I would encourage you to buy the membership. We could not do this without our members. The Reload is a 100% reader funded publication. It is independent. It does not have backing from any interest groups or big corporations or anything like that. So you guys are the ones who keep it going. But uh, until next week, Thank you for listening, and I'll see you again soon. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones, but none of them were ever my own.